You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. But I realize that there's a lot on the line when it comes to Valentine's Day because my wife is here. And I, there's no joking when it comes to that. So, <laughs> so nevertheless, we, there are not good days ahead. We are in very good days. And this is a very, I think, very interesting time, very strategic time to be very, try to be as much in tune to what you can. Try to be as in tune as you can. And I say that very carefully, not to say, um, you know, get rid of everything bad in your house. You know, I'm not, <laughs> let me say this, be led by the Lord. Be led by the Lord in everything that you do. But at the same time, be very in tune to what's happening because God is about to do something amazing. And I don't want to be someone standing on the sidelines going, man, that was great. Did you see what happened over there? I want to be someone in it. Like, man, I was there. <laughs> I still remember the day I was, uh, I was a youth pastor. And at, um, I can say this. I was a youth pastor at Freedom Christian Center. And it was tent meeting night. And I remember that year they said, look, can you can stand with Pastor Bobby Ray for a minute? You know, he was in a, a motorcycle accident. Can you stand with him while he prays for people? If you know how tent meeting runs at the end of the service where Pastor Andrew Walmack does his thing, they all, the pastors would come up and they would pray for people. And I remember that year, as my first year, I finally got to be up front. And at the time, I was just getting hooked into grace. And as I was standing in the front, I remember watching, I remember watching blind eyes open. I remember watching a, a lady when she came in, she had a cane and she was hunched over. And when they prayed for her, she, she stood straight up. And I watched stuff like that. And I mean, I'm telling you, for me, it was phenomenal. I went back to work and I was telling people, I saw this last night, I saw it. And, you know, you have the skeptics. They, oh, well, do you know she was really, you know, crippled? How do you know that guy was really blind or that, that lady was really deaf? You know, stuff like that. But I believe what we're about to see is about to put all the skeptics to silence. And we're about to see amazing things. So nevertheless, all those things come about, I believe. My mom reminded me of a verse last night. Grace and peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge of who? Jesus Christ. If you want to see more grace in your life, if you want to see more peace in your life, you need to have a greater knowledge and revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not for me to see myself. The Bible is not even for me to see you. The Bible is for me to see Jesus Christ. When Jesus expounds the scriptures, he always expounds the scriptures concerning him. And the more of Jesus I see, the more the Holy Spirit transforms me into the image of Christ that I see. Not me, but the Holy Spirit. And as I see him, grace and peace are multiplied to me. I don't know about you, but I want more grace in my life. I want more unearned favor, more undeserved favor. Right? Amen? Amen. So we're going to open the Bible again today to concern Christ. But all that said to say, it's going to be a very themed message around love, obviously. Now, obviously, the first question that comes up is, what is love? And before we look at this, I, what, by definition, and obviously the name of the church, what is love by definition? Thank you for that. Not that we, not that we love God, but that he loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. We're going to pick up at verse 9. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now notice love is manifested in that God sent His only Son into the world. That's how love was manifested. 
But I love verse 10 because to me, verse 10 set a perfect definition of what love is. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, a long time ago, I asked God, I said, okay, I understand that this is the definition of love. But to me, this is not a great definition of love. Why did you choose this to be the definition of love? And the Lord spoke to me. He said, because I always define things by the greatest definition there can be. The greatest definition of love is not that we love God. It's not even that I love my wife or my wife loves me. The greatest definition of love is that God loved me and he sent his son. That's the greatest definition. Now, when it comes to love, understand this. If I try to love God and say, okay, God, this is my love for you. If I focus on my love for God, my love always fluctuates. There are times when, I, when I'm in worship and I'm like, oh, God, you know, you love me so much. And I love you so much. And my love is at an all-time high. And I walk out to church and I'm on cloud nine. I'm in love with God. But then, you know, the very next day something happens. Uh, my boss gets on my nerves. A coworker gets on my nerves. And my love for God is, is gone. Not that I don't love God, but I'm not focusing on my love for God. So it's not on cloud, I'm not on cloud nine anymore. Does that make sense? So if I try to focus on my love for God, my love for God always goes up and down. It's better for me to focus on his love for me because his love for me never goes up and down. His love for me is always at an all time high. Amen. Now, look at this in verse 18. Skipping forward to verse 18. John says there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. One translation says torture. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love. Now, I, I don't like that it says him. In the original Greek, him is not there. What it really says is we love because he first loved us. Now, if you put him in there, the implication is we love God because he first loved us. Now, that is true. That is true. But when you take him out, the understanding is we love God, but we also love everyone else because he first loved us. And when I saw that years ago, when I saw that, it occurred to me, you know what? It's not about, let me say say it this way. When I realized that I love because he first loved me, in order for me to love my wife the way that God wants me to love her, I have to first know how much God loved me. Does that make sense? You see, the law says love. Love or else. Grace says, I'm going to give you the love. Now you can love. One of the things I I love about the difference between law and grace, the law says, okay, do this, do this or else. Grace says, my standard is higher than the law. But in order for you to fulfill my standard that's higher than the law, I'm going to give you what I want. And then as you live out what I've given you, you are reaching a standard that's higher than the law. You know, the law says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, did you know it's possible for me to hate myself and still keep that law? And think about it. I mean, it's common sense, I know, but think about it. You know, if, I, if I'm a person that, that, that always abuses myself, always, uh, you know, has a lot of bad words for myself, and then one day I start to uh, abuse my, myself. Let's say I start to, to cut myself. I start hurting myself. I hate myself. Did you know it's possible for me to keep that law, love your neighbor as yourself, and hurt someone else? If I hurt Tiki... Because I'm hurting myself, at the end of the day, I'm hurting him. I'm still keeping the law because I love myself this much and I'm loving him to the same degree. Now, that was never what God intended. But the point is to show you that you can never keep it. So when Jesus comes, he gives us his love. And now we realize, hey, I can never love God with all my heart, all my soul and all my strength. So God turned around and said, let me show you how much I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And then Jesus spread his arms. Does that make sense? So now I know how much he loves me and I can love 
as he first loved me. Nevertheless, we love because he first loved us. Now, as I started to look at this, I was reminded of a parable that I don't think I've talked about in the church for quite a while. It's in Matthew, no, it's in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We haven't talked about that in a while, have we? We have not. Do many of you remember that parable? Well, not the parable last time we talked about it. It was like last year. Perfect. (laughs) Now, we're not going to break down the whole parable. But nevertheless, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, normally I would just start at the parable. Jesus said a certain man was traveling from Jericho. I'm sorry, from Jerusalem to Jericho. But it was about a year and a half ago, I was, I was at work and I was studying something else. And the Lord took me to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I had to share it with the church. And at the time, what he showed me was this. Look at the context. Because the context is very important. So I backed up to look at the context. And what you see is right here in verse 25. Now Jesus is standing in the midst of a bunch of people and he's, he's ministering. He's speaking. Okay? And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Verse 27. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, is that true? Just think for a moment. Is that true? That is true. Okay. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Now, before we move forward. What is the evangelical answer today? If someone comes to you and says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do you say today? All right. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. But it's interesting when anybody comes to Jesus and and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He always gives them the law. If you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what can I do? He'll give you the law. But if you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't do it. He'll give you his grace. All right. So Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus. Now, I love that that phrase, wanting to justify himself. The impression that I always get is Jesus is standing in the midst of people. They're all sitting. He's talking. And all of a sudden, the lawyer steps in and says, hey, what must I do? So Jesus answers. And he says, you've answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. And all of a sudden, the man realizing, I kind of look stupid now because I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Okay, I kind of look stupid. He just put the law in my face. The man wanting to justify himself says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, that's a good question because as a kid, when I heard, Matthew, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. What's the golden rule? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Now, as a kid, again, my question is this. Who is my neighbor? Because right now, there's no one beside me. Ah, does it make sense? So who is my neighbor? Now, when I'm walking through the room, the first person I'll pass is Pastor Samuel. If I'm going to the back, now he's my neighbor. But what about Christina on the other side of the room? Is she my neighbor? And so then it becomes, who is my neighbor? Now, as a kid, no one ever told me this. And this, I was so grateful because God showed me this. Who is your neighbor? Now, the question is, who is my neighbor? Why is he asking who is my neighbor? Because the law says to do what to your neighbor? Love your neighbor. So if I can identify who my neighbor is, then I can love him and keep the law. Correct? I never saw that before. In fact, I shared it with the church about a year ago. But at the time, I had never seen this. And then Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Watch this. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Stop for a moment. Keep in mind, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They didn't like them. In fact, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan woman. At one point, she stopped and said, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Jews don't talk to us. <laughs> All right, we have disagreements. You don't talk to us. So Jesus is not telling this parable to Gentiles. He's not even telling this parable to Samaritans. He's telling this parable to Jews. And when he gets to this part of the parable, think the same way that they're thinking. We don't like the Samaritans. Watch what happens. The, the priest walks past. The Levite walks past. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, instead of saying, ah, a Jew, kick him and keep going. <laughs> what did he do? He had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So, what, so which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now, I know you can see it up here. You probably already read it. Let's stop for a moment. I always thought, Matthew, be the good Samaritan. Think about this. Be the good Samaritan. Isn't that the way you always heard it? The implication is, who's the Samaritan in the story? You are, right? And when you see someone hurting, be a good Samaritan. Do something for someone else. Be the good Samaritan. But wait a second. That's not what Jesus was saying here. Jesus didn't say, are you the Samaritan? Jesus said, which of these was a neighbor to the man? Which of these was the neighbor? Implying, who's the man that was beaten up? Us. Does that make sense? In fact, years ago, I didn't want to break this whole thing apart. But years ago, when, when, I, when I first studied, not years ago, a year ago, when I was studying this, the Lord showed me this. The thieves and robbers, in fact, the same word is used in John 10. All who came before me, Jesus said, were thieves and robbers. Talking about the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. When you sit under law-based preaching and teaching, what's really happening is, is they're robbing you of all the things that God has given you. They're robbing you of all the grace that God would give you. They're robbing you. They're being a thief and a robber. And then as I kept going... You go on and you find that the man, in fact, the word in the Greek, man, he's leaving from Jerusalem, going to Jericho. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus came. The, the gospel was given to the Jew first, then the Gentile. And this man is leaving Jerusalem. He's going to Jericho. Who was the first enemy that the Israelites encountered when they came into the promised land? Jericho. So you see, the Gentiles, by nature, are automatically enemies of God. And this man that's leaving there is coming to them. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a second, I'm the man. And I'm carrying the gospel with me. And as I go to the enemy of God to share the good news of what God has done for me, all along the way, thieves and robbers, preachers and teachers who have been preaching the law, who have been preaching, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And you say, well, how can we get around not preaching that? People need to know how to live. Trust the Holy Spirit. Joseph didn't have the Ten Commandments, yet he stood in front of Potiphar's wife and said this. How can I sin against my God by committing adultery with you? Yet he had no law. And the Bible says in Romans, what, Romans chapter 5, by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right? So at the end of the day, we don't need preaching and teaching to say do and don't. What we need is preaching and teaching that says, hey, look what Jesus did. Amen. All right? So this man fell among thieves and robbers. And Jesus says, I ask you, which one was a neighbor to, so which of these do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Which one is it? Obviously, verse 37. And he said, the lawyer, 
he who showed mercy on him. It's almost like he doesn't even want to say Samaritan. Like it's, hard, it's hard for Samaritan to come out. He who showed mercy on him, the Samaritan. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, if you want to know how to keep this commandment, and I never saw this until the Lord shared it with me. If you want to know how to keep this commandment, what's the secret? You're not the Samaritan. You're the one that was beaten up. But what you have to realize is this. When everyone else passed by you, Jesus did not. Jesus did not. And Jesus stopped. And you know what? The Bible says he came into his own. His own received him not. They have a hard time with Samaritans. So Jesus says, let me show you that I am the Samaritan in the story. You have a hard time from receiving from me, but it's okay. Because when you're at your worst, when you're at that one place where you, oh, no one's going to save me. And everyone has passed by. He says, I'm going to be the one that picks you up, puts you on the donkey and takes you to the end. And I'm going to be the one that pays the innkeeper. And when I come back, I'll pay him anything past what I owe him. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus is the Samaritan in the story. Now, question, who is my neighbor? Because if I want to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor then? Christ. Christ is my neighbor. And if I can understand that, then who am I supposed to love? Love him as he loved me. Didn't Jesus say in John, I think, 14, this is a new commandment that I'm giving you. A new commandment. Not like the old. This is a new commandment. Love as I have loved you. The difference is what? I have to know how much he loved me first. Now I can turn around and love everyone else. Isn't that awesome? This is the love of the Father. Now, I love this parable because I never saw the connection from what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Watch this. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Paul says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. I, this verse is always one of those verses, again, that always eluded me. I, I never could figure it out. But I like the way it's... It, once I understood it, I like the way it's worded. It's very rare that someone will die for another person. But think about someone that's a really, really good person. And in the movies, what do they do? You know, I'm going to die for you because you're a really good person. You continue to live. So what, what is Paul saying? Scarcely for a righteous man will one die is rare. Yet perhaps even for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, and I put it in red. Sorry, I should have put it in gold. It's kind of hard to read. But how does God demonstrate his own love toward us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I know this is a common theme that we, 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 we preach in our church. But again, on Valentine's Day, how does God show his love for you? He said, I'm not going to wait for you to get it right. I'm not even going to wait for you to realize that you're a sinner. I'm not going to wait for you to realize that you need me. Because then you might try to fix yourself. Long before you have the ability to change, long before you have the ability to try and fix yourself, I'm going to come and I'm going to die for you. In fact, I think it's Galatians, it says, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right on time. It was the perfect time, the perfect place. Man is at his all-time worst. In fact, last night when I was kind of going over my notes again, one of the things that came to me was this. The love of God was shown in that he took man's worst sin. And the one thing that we should say, oh man, this is the most shameful thing we could have ever done. He who didn't deserve it took my place and we beat him. We are responsible for the death of Christ. And the one thing that should make us the most ashamed, he turned that thing and made it his greatest act of love. And you know what it means? In the area where you feel like, God, I'm ashamed of this and I'm ashamed of that. And when I was this old, I did that and I'm ashamed of all these things. Those should be the, those are the moments where God turns those and says, you know what? Instead of being ashamed, this is going to be the greatest display of my love for you. I was like, man, I love that. So this is how God manifests his love toward us. Now, when you're talking about love real quick, like I said, I'm not going to go very long. But when we're talking about love, one of the, the common 
verses that comes up is the chapter in 1 Corinthians on love. Does anyone know what chapter that is? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this has been turned into the law so many times. This has been turned into the law. I was always taught, Matthew, if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, if you want to love God, if you want to love people, this is how you should love them. Love is patient. This is New King James Version. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Now, I don't know about you. I never made it to the end because I couldn't get the first one down. Love is patient. I am, I'm not the most patient person. I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, and Christina will tell you, I've had a, a taste for like a certain restaurant. Let's say I want to go somewhere uh, like a fast food place. Like Bojangles. Let's say I have a taste for Bojangles. If I drive to Bojangles and there's a line, all of a sudden my taste buds are gone. I don't even want Bojangles anymore. I want something else. And it's a lack of patience. All right. I'm not even going to lie. It's a lack of patience. So when it says love is patient, I'm going to be honest. I am the least patient in this room. It, it is what it is. Nevertheless, the love of God is transforming me. Thank you for saying amen. Thank you for saying that. He's not transforming you. But <laughs> all right. Nevertheless, love is patient. Love is kind. Now, again, this is not me how I should love. I'm not using this as a chart to say, Matthew, am I loving people this way? This is actually a definition of God's love for me. In fact, I didn't share this last Wednesday night. I meant to. If you were here last Wednesday night, we were talking about prayer. And I mentioned last Wednesday night that 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's verse 2. Paul says, if I have all prophecy and all understanding of all mysteries. I'm sorry, if I speak with prophecy, have all understanding of all mysteries. And I have all faith that I might move mountains. Yet, if I don't have love, the love that God has for me inside of me, I am nothing. Now, I shared that last, last Wednesday, and I never thought about that. It's not my gift is nothing. It's I am nothing. And what you see is that God cares so much about the people that, you know what? God cares so much about you that even if I'm not where I should be, God will still bless you. And he'll still give to you. That's why you see people behind the pulpit. You're like, man, he is a horrible person. But when he steps in the pulpit, the anointing of God flows. And it always was a mystery to me. You know why? Because it's like Moses. When Moses stood before the rock the second time, God said, speak to it this time. Speak to it. And yet Moses got angry and hit the rock. Now, that's a horrible thing to do. God says, speak. Moses hit. And you would think, well, God's not going to provide. But God loves the people so much, he still gave them water. It's about the people. In this position, God loves you. In a sense, more than me. Not, not, not that he loves you more. He loves me the most in this room. We all know that. But nevertheless, all right, God loves you so much that even if I haven't gotten it down all the way, he'll still bless you in spite of me. All right, now there's a safety in that. I love that. Nevertheless, this is not a chart for me to chart how good I am. This is a chart for me to understand this is how God is. And when you understand that verse 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, if I speak with tongues, don't have love, I'm a sounding brass. Tongues won't help me. If I, if, I, if I have all understanding and all faith and I don't have love, I am nothing. All of a sudden, it, it doesn't do anything for me. Does it make sense? And then the very last one he says, um, what's the last thing he says? Uh, <laughs> I got you. Don't worry. What is it? All this is coming here. Here it is. Verse 3, Paul says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Years ago, I asked the Lord, I've seen people in, in the church I was in give, 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 and yet they're still as poor as they were the day they first gave. Why is it that people can give and it doesn't profit? Isn't this your system? Isn't this your economy? And then the Lord brought me to this verse and said, it's possible to give everything you have, and yet it will never profit you a dime because you're not giving out of my love for you. 
You're giving out of your love for me. And that never works. Never works. But then all of a sudden, I saw this. And this was last week. I said, Lord, how, how does this fit with what you said in 1, 2, and 3? And the Lord showed me. He said, son, because when you have failed in 1, 2, and 3, come to verse 4. And verse 4 will bring you back to where you should be. You begin to realize God is patient. He's patient. He knows I'm not going to get it right the first time, second time, third time. Men, we don't get it right the first time, second time, third time. And all the women said. Okay, anyways. <laughs> Nevertheless, we don't get it right. But you know what? Your father is patient. He's patient. And when you realize that he is patient, instead of falling and saying, I can't get back up. My God doesn't want to use me. You can say, you know what? He's patient with me. He still wants to use me. In fact, if you read all the way through, which we're not, one of them comes to the point. It says, love believes all things. There's one translation that says this. Love always believes the best. And I love that one. Because you know what it means? It means even when I'm in the middle of doing my worst, he still believes the best. God still believes the best in me. And when I get up and I say, how can I do this? And God, I've messed up. i made so many mistakes. He says, you know what? I don't see your sin. I see, the, I see the payment that my son made. And when your sin abounds, my grace goes even much further. I love you. And then all of a sudden, when that love enters my heart and I realize this is how he loves me. He believes the best of Matthew Edwards. Matthew Edwards is not a great guy, but he believes the best of Matthew Edwards. I can get back up. And in fact, at the end of this, I only put to verse 8, but verse 9 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. Not verse 9, I'm sorry. Verse 10, I think, says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I saw as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, and for a long time, I never understood the maturity of the believer is not based on how many scriptures you know. The maturity of the believer is based on how much you know God loves you. How much? You know what I love so much about the love of God in, in terms of a topic, in terms of a subject? Of all the people Jesus could have revealed himself to on the day of resurrection, who was the first person to see Jesus? The first person to see the resurrected Christ. Who was? It's Mary. And where did she see him? At the tomb, right? She saw him at the tomb. Now, think about this for a moment. When she ran to the tomb, she was going to anoint him. So in her mind, she thought Jesus is dead. (laughs) That's that's wrong theology. (laughs) Does that make sense? She was inaccurate of her understanding of the scripture. She thought Jesus was still dead. But because she had a heart for him, not so much a heart for him, but she understood his heart for her. She ran to the tomb. And of all the people Jesus could have revealed himself to, he reveals himself to her first. I believe it was her who had the biggest heart at that moment for Jesus. And she wasn't even conscious of her heart for him. In fact, love is blind. Love can make you feel... <laughs> I'm going to say that. <laughs> she, you, can tell, you can tell she's not the smartest, she's not the brightest crayon in the bunch. Because okay? when she shows up, she says, tell me where they put him. I, I'm going to come and I'm going to grab him. Not, not just on that, this, this, this woman. She says... She comes to the tomb by herself. Now, if the, if the stone is in front of the tomb, who's going to roll the stone away? She went by herself. Who's going to roll the stone away? I mean, think about it. <laughs> and yet, she didn't care. She has such a heart for him. Or she has such an understanding of his heart for her. And because of that, she says, I don't care about the stone. I don't care about anything. I just want to go see him. I just want to go be with him. Even though he's dead and he's not dead. And then Jesus reveals himself to her. Does it make sense? And you know, what that, you know what that tells me? Even if my theology is wrong, even if I don't believe everything 100% right, if I have an understanding of how God loves me, that's maturity. And he'll never pass over someone who knows how much he loves him. Never. All right? Now, from here I want to move to the book of Ruth. Is that okay? 
I'm going to close with the story of Ruth. Now, we all know the story of Ruth. We're not going to read all four chapters. We're going to kind of skim through the book of Ruth, okay? But I like Ruth. Her name means friendship. In fact, just um, the last few days, I was going over the idea of Ruth, especially last night. I started to think about Ruth, and I started to notice some really interesting details about the story of Ruth that I never thought of, all right? Does anyone know what her name means, Ruth? It means friendship. Did you know Jesus said there is no greater love than this, that a man should do what? Lay down his life for a friend. Now, I love that because when Jesus was saying that, he's talking to people who are not saved. Christ has not died yet. So none of these people are saved. And yet, while he's talking to them, he says, there's no greater love than a friend should lay down his life for a, that a man should lay down his life for a friend. Now, to me, I would say that a man should lay down his life for someone he doesn't even know. But Jesus is talking to them. Do you realize that he knew you long before you were even in your mother's womb? And before you were even there, he knew you and he called you friend. And you haven't done anything right. You haven't done anything wrong. But until you're in me, you can't be a son. It's only in Christ are you a son. But until you're, in Christ, until you're here in Christ, you know what he says? I'm going to call you friend. I'm going to call you friend. Now today, is inaccurate to say God is my friend? No, he's my father. Jesus is my older brother. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I am a son. Now, I'm going to say this. You can say God is my friend. That's okay. But the more accurate thing to say is not my friend. He's my father. All right. Me and my dad are friends. But we don't look at each other as friends. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. So nevertheless, he's my father. Now, as you understand that, what was I talking about? Friend. Okay. Friendship. That's right. So as you understand that, all of a sudden it occurred to me, friend, friend, friend. Who's the hero in the story of Ruth? Who's the hero? Boaz. Now, Boaz, really interesting. What you see is this. Ruth is a picture of all of us. One time, think about this. Where, where Ruth actually came from, I'm sorry, I know my thoughts are starting to get jumbled. Ruth was a Moabite, and the Moabites were cursed because of how they treated Israel when they came out of Egypt, when they were in the wilderness wandering, right? They were cursed. So Ruth, not only is she a Moabite and she's cursed, but her name means friend. And again, it's a picture of all of us. Because all of us were under the curse of what Adam did. All of us were under the curse. And yet we were not in him, so we were only friends in his perspective of us. Ruth is a friend. But by the end of the story, when she marries Boaz, she's no longer just his friend. She, now she's his wife. She's his bride, right? Now, Boaz is an interesting name. We're going to see him in just a moment. But Boaz, when I looked up his name, does anyone know what his name means? Well, he was a kinsman redeemer. But you know what his name means? Boaz. Ah, I looked up, I kept, I went to like five different dictionaries and I found out his name means swiftness or quickness. All right. But the interesting thing is this. I, had, I actually found a couple commentaries. You know, when you break his name down, Bo, B-O and then the as, A-Z, when you break them down, Bo means in him and then the as means strength. Literally the Hebrew letters, when you put them together, it means in him, strength. In him is strength. Now, I was like, why don't you, when you put the words together, does it say in him is strength? Why is it always defined as quickness? But the best I could find out is this. When Solomon built his temple, there were pillars that stood out front, right? To hold up the front foyer porch area. Two of the pillars on the right side, I'm sorry, on the left side of the pillar, on the left side of the front foyer, two of the pillars that held up the pillar, they wrote bow and they wrote as, bow as, as if these two pillars were in his honor. But bow again means in him and then the other one means strength. Put the two together, what you have is strength. Then I started to realize, wait a second, his name put together means swiftness or quickness. Boaz is quick to be your strength in him. 
in him, he's quick to be your strength. I was like, wow, you put the two together. Now, all that said, Ruth is a picture of all of us, a picture of the church. Again, a picture of the church. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Okay. And Boaz is the hero in the story. Now, let's look at the story from chapter one, verse one. And we'll close with the story of Ruth. It says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Pause for a moment. Where were they living at first when the famine hit? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. That goes back to what we talked about last week about the bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Okay. So again, it goes back to bread. Went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took the wives of the... Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. <laughs> now, let me back up and show you some, some pictures real quick and we'll move on. All right. Now, this is just the story. Bring us up to where we're at. Okay. Where was that? Uh, the name of his sons. How long were they in the country of Moab? Look at here. Verse four. It says, and they dwelt there in Moab about how long? Ten years. Now, when I read this, I never really thought about it. I was always like, okay, 10, 10, they were there for 10 years. To me, the understanding was, okay, that's just giving me a timeline. How long they were there? But then all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a second. We know a lot about types, shadows, and figures in the Bible. And everything points to another picture of Christ. What does 10 represent throughout the Bible? Represents what? The law. How many commandments were written on tablets of stone? 10. The big 10. 10. So they were in the land that was cursed for how long? 10 years. 10. Didn't Paul say the ministry of death written and engraved on stone? And then all of a sudden I started to put one and two together. There was a verse in Galatians I was going to share with you. But it literally says this. It is written, cursed is the one who does not do all that is written in the commandments. Cursed is the one who does not do all that is written in the commandments. And in Galatians, Paul's argument is this. If you're fighting for the law, then know this. You are cursed because there's no way in the world you can keep all. If you break one commandment, you've broken them all. You've broken them all. And what you see here is this. They moved to Moab, the people who were cursed. For example, it's like a picture of living in, in, in an environment or in a, in a church where people are always saying, do this, do that, do this. And when you're in that environment and you break one commandment, what happens? Cursed. Cursed. And didn't Paul say the ministry of death written and engraved on stone? But I love so much what it says right here. Verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab, not back at home, but she heard in that country, the Lord has visited his people. How? By giving them bread. And then all of a sudden, it goes back to last Sunday. The bread is our answer to everything. Everything. You say, well, man, uh, my relationship, this relationship with this person got hit and we, we had a, a massive fallout. Stop what you're doing. Take the bread in the cup. Stop what you're doing. Take communion where you're at. 
You say, oh man, you know, my finances got hit here. I wasn't expecting that. Stop what you're doing. Take the bread and the cup. Stop whatever you're doing. Take the bread and the cup. In Hosea, the Lord says this. In that day, they'll cry out to me and I will respond to the heavens. The heavens will respond to the earth. The earth will respond with the grain, the wine, and the oil. The communion. So God's response to us is this. Everything you need is found in the bread and in the cup. I love that. That's why I put it in gold. Anyways, skip ahead to verse 19. It says, now the two of them, I'm sorry, let you know what happened. <laughs> she says, I'm going to go back home. So she grabs her, her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And she says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. So they follow her to the border. Then she turns around and skipping a lot of details. She says, go back home. Even if I were to have children tonight and the children were to be born and to, and to grow up, would you wait for them to be adults so that you can marry them again? So she kisses Orpah and Orpah goes home. But then Ruth tells her, I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I go. And then we see that famous, that famous quote from Ruth, right? Now I'm going to fast forward to verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came, uh, Ruth and Naomi, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem, the house of bread, that all the city was excited because of them. And the, woman, and the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Stop for a moment. Is she really empty? Is she empty? Who does she have with her? Ruth. She has Ruth. Wrong, pers- wrong perspective. But anyways, the Lord has brought me again home. It brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Pick up in Ruth chapter 2, the very next verse. Verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Now this is where Boaz comes into the story. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she had come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now we know that this was all set up by God. All this was set in place by God. But what what got my attention was this. I never put this together with what Jesus said in Matthew 13. Now watch what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Before we look at that, what did Ruth say? What did she say to, her, uh, to Naomi, her mother-in-law? She said, uh, please let me go to where? The field. And glean the heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. Now she's speaking by faith. I'll find favor in whoever's sight of the field I land in. But the point is, I'm in the field. And don't forget, Boaz is the type and shadow of Christ, right? He's the type and shadow of Christ. Now we're going to see what Boaz says when he sees her. But before we see that, look what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. I was like, man, never put it together. <laughs> it's like a treasure in the field. And you know how we always were taught that? I mean, come on, we, we've talked about this before. We were always taught Jesus is the treasure in the field. He's the treasure in the field. And, and when, when you find Jesus, you, you should be excited about him. And you should go and sell all you have and buy the field so you can have Jesus. Isn't that sad? <laughs> First of all, I didn't find Jesus. Jesus found me. It's always I, 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 I found the Lord in 19. No, you didn't find the Lord. The Lord, you, the Lord wasn't lost. <laughs> you were lost. He found you. All right. And he's not. Jesus did not say <laughs> I'm the treasure in the field. Jesus said, you're the treasure in the field. But I didn't want to take you and leave the field because that'd be stealing. So you know what I did? I bought the whole field. <laughs> I bought the whole field so I could have you. I bought the whole field so I could have you. And you know what that tells me? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look at the lilies of the 
field, how they grow. Look at the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory is dressed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field. Look how God has clothed the earth with you. You're his treasure that he found in the field. And Jesus sold it all so he could have you. He gave up everything so he could have you. This is the love of God. I never saw that before. Now, after she ends up in the field, look at verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now he just saw her. Is that moment. He just saw her. You can play the music in the background if we had it. We would. Verse 6. <laughs> so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It's the young Moabite woman. Notice how they address it. It's not just the young woman that came with Naomi. It's the young Moabite woman. Keep in mind, you're a Jew. She's a Moabite. All right? It's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said to the reapers, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz says to Ruth, then he goes and finds her. He says this, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go and glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. And I put it in gold because this is what he does for her. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? Protection. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Favor. Not only did he protect her, but he turned around and said, don't even work for the water you're going to drink. Let my young men draw the water and then you drink from what they've done. Didn't Jesus say the field, the harvest is plenty? Pray that God was in reapers. For a long time, I was always told you cannot reap what you have not sown. But this is a clear indication. The ones who have gone before us have sown. They have sown. They have sown. But now the harvest is plenty. And I'm telling you, we are about to reap what you have not sown. You're about to reap it. And you know why? Because now you have a revelation that I'm Ruth and he's Boaz. And what have I done to deserve this? Nothing. Again, if we come to him and we say, Lord, Lord, I got my life right. I've done it. I've fixed this. I've fixed this area. I've fixed that area. Okay, now I, now I can be used. You are disqualified. <laughs> Grace is for people who don't deserve it. The only way to be unqualified for undeserved favor is to deserve it. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Then verse 10. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? Isn't that the question we all ask? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now I'm skipping some of the verses. You can go back and read it for yourself. Look at this in verse 15. It says, and when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying this. Now she's gone. Boaz commands his young men saying this. Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. In other words, let her go as far as she wants. Verse 16. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. <laughs> Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Not only did he tell her about the water that she's not going to work for, he didn't tell her about the grain she was going to get. I'm telling you, there's things that God is, he's dropping for you. He's dropping for you. And you know, when the Lord, when you finally accepted what Christ did for you, everything was set up on purpose by your heavenly Boaz. He was putting things in order so that the moment you came and you met him and you had that opportunity to say yes, everything was actually orchestrated. You didn't know that, but everything was orchestrated so that you would say yes. Everything. He did all these things to show you. This is how I feel about you. So when you come in, you say, how can I say no to someone who loves me this much? I haven't done anything, and yet look at what he's done for me. 
That's why it always gets me. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the key to winning spiritual warfare is not bringing all our thoughts to our obedience of the flesh and our sacrifice and our devotion and our discipline of my body. I mean, don't get me wrong. Paul said, I discipline my body so that I won't be disqualified from the race. Nevertheless, spiritual warfare, the way to win, the key is what? The obedience of Christ. Every thought is brought captive to the obedience of what Christ has done. Not my obedience, but his obedience. And when I realize it's his obedience, all of a sudden, what happens? I can fall more in love with him because it's not based on me. Even when I think I lose, I'm still winning. Because even only in Christ can you lose and still win. Because he loves you that much. This is the love of God. Does that make sense? Where are we at? <laughs> Skip forward to chapter 3. Now she goes home and she, 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 he gives her an ephah of barley. Take this home to your mother-in-law. So she goes home. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall not seek security for you. I'm sorry, I'm skipping a lot of information. She goes home and she brings this ephah barley and tells her all that happened with Boaz. Now, skip forward to Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you. Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Now, keep in mind, was she wearing her best clothes when he first saw her? Was she wearing her best clothes when he fell in love with her? No, but it's a picture of what, all, what we all do. <laughs> all of a sudden, we receive Christ. And now, I've got to put on every, I've got to be my best. This week is going to be the best week I've ever done, ever been. <laughs> he says, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Translation, take advantage of him once he's drunk. <laughs> Verse 4. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. I put this in gold because if you have a band, what's the verse for the year? Psalm 116 verse 7. And it says, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, keep in mind, the first time she goes after the field, she walks away with one ephah of barley, right? She wanted what he had. She got an ephah of barley. But this time she says what? Go down and find out where he's lying down. For all of us today, find out where Christ is resting. Where is Christ at today? At the right hand of the Father. Is Christ standing up and working? No, Christ is resting. The Bible says, my Lord said, my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit, rest, until I've made your enemies your footstool. So you know what? Christ is seated until the Father has made his enemies his footstool. Likewise, if we're in Christ, what should you be doing today? Resting. Rest until the Father makes all your enemies your footstool. All right? So watch. Look where he lies down, that you may notice the place where he lies. And you shall go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. Now fast forward to verse 8. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. Talking about Boaz. She comes in the middle of the night. Everyone's drunk. They're passed out. They're sleeping. She comes in the middle of the night. And uh, she uncovers his feet and she lays down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there was a woman lying at his feet. (laughs) And he says, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after the young men, whether poor or rich. To be completely honest, she really didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. Because he was so good to her, how could she notice anyone else? But for not noticing anyone else, he says, you know what? (laughs) He says, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. Isn't it like God to give you credit for something you didn't do? 
And think about it. He gives you credit for things and you're like, well, did I really have a choice in the matter? Look what you were doing for me. <laughs> and he still gives her credit for it. Now, skip over to verse 11. It says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. Right? (laughs) Now watch this. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said to her, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. When you pursue what the Lord has, you'll always walk away with something. Anyone that says, I'm coming to church because I need what God has. Or I'm coming to God, I'm asking you for this. I know I never pray, I never read, I never do these things. But I need you right now in this moment. You will always get something. You will always get something. That's his nature. That's his love for you. He always gives. But the moment she stopped chasing what he had and chased him, she didn't walk away with one. She walked away with six. (laughs) And she... What does he say? Bring the shawl in you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Again, he doesn't send you empty-handed. Verse 18. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out for you. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now, we've talked about this verse plenty of times. I don't want to stay on this very long. I want to move on so we can close. But nevertheless, I love this verse. He will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. This is so key for me in my own personal life because what it tells me is this. Matthew, if you refuse to sit down, then he will sit down. But if I will sit down, he'll stand up and he'll work for me. We cannot be standing up together. And he won't let both of us sit down together. Does it make sense? If I will rest, then he'll work. But if I want to work, he'll rest. So sit down, because he won't rest until the matter is concluded. Now look at verse 1. I counted the word sit down five times in verse 1 and 2. Watch this. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, number one. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now mind you, who sat down before this? Ruth. When Ruth sits down, all of a sudden Boaz goes to the gate and he sits down. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, my friend, and sit down. Number two, sit down here. So he came aside and number three. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city. Does that mean there were only 10? No. But what does 10 mean? It's a picture of the whole. Not, not, not in this one right here. But it's a picture of the whole. For example, when Abraham's servant went to find a bride for Isaac, he took 10 of his master's camels. And then when he spoke to them, he said, these are all that my master has. Did Abraham only have 10 camels? Of course not. But the 10th represents the whole. So you have 10 elders of the city. And what does he say? Sit down. That's number four. So they sat down. Number five. What is five the number of? Isn't that interesting? Verse three. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to her brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Now, I love the picture here. Before we move on, and I'm going to close. Verse 7 is my last verse. I promise. <laughs> right? Notice what he says. I will redeem it. Now, if the story stopped there, if it ended there, let me tell you this. All of us should be afraid because of what all of this represents. All right? This unnamed closer relative than Boaz. Boaz is a picture of Christ. But there was a relative closer. And that relative says, I will redeem her. I will. But who is the relative that's saying this? Who is he? What is he a picture and a type of? The law. He's a picture of the law. The law said, I'll redeem them. I'll take them. And you know what the sad thing is? <laughs> it's like Paul says in Romans chapter, I think it's Romans chapter 7. We were once married to the law. But none of us could keep it. And every time we fall, the judgment comes. The judgment comes. The judgment comes. But watch this. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess. I love how you put that on there. He didn't, he didn't even say Ruth. He didn't leave it. He said, Ruth, the Moabitess. Keep in mind, she's cursed. If you want her, she's cursed. <laughs> the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Verse 6. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You know what that means? The law cannot bend for any of us. If you want to keep the law, go right ahead. Do the best you can. But the moment you fall, the law cannot bend for you, or else it's not the law. You say, well, Matthew, I'm good in nine, but I can't keep number 10. Number 10 is the one that gets me the most. Thou shalt not steal. Don't come around anything we have in the church. Thou shalt not steal. That's the one that gets me the most, all right? <laughs> if you break one, you've broken them all. You're guilty of them all. And the thing is this, if you want to keep it, know this, the law will never bend. The law won't say, well, you did good on nine. Number 10, you keep messing up. But we won't, we won't, we won't address number 10. Keep number nine. You're great. We got this down. Stealing, we're not sure about. But everything else you're good with. All right? The law cannot bend or else it's not perfect. So what does the man say? I cannot redeem it for it myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. What does he say? You redeem it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I love that. Now, who's the one who can redeem? Boaz. Then verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. And we'll close with this. This crazy idea of taking shoes off. And we've talked about before. But what is the whole point of all this? When Moses stood before the burning bush, what did God say to Moses? The first thing he said, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. The idea is what? Moses, you will be the instrument I use, but you are not the one that redeems. It's me. It's me. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. When John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River, he said, there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire. And you know what? I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. You know why? Because when he comes, he'll be the one that redeems. But you know what I love? When Jesus is speaking and ministering under the old, we, all, we see this idea of we have to take our shoes off. Why? Because none of us are doing this. But when Jesus is ministering about the parable of the prodigal son, when the son comes home to the father. You know what I love about that parable? I'm closing. I promise. This is it. <laughs> you know what I love about that parable? The last thing he saw his father, he was being mean to his father. In a sense, what he said is, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. He took it and he turned around and he left. But what's the first image he saw of his father? When he came back, his father was running as fast as he could over the hill. That's the first thing he saw of his father. I was mean to my father. I said I did all kinds of things I could do wrong. I did everything. I even I even messed up his name. And the first image he sees of his father is his father running as fast as he can to him over the hill. 
And when he comes to his father, what did Jesus say his father did? He ran to him. He hugged him. He kissed him. He put his ring on him. He put his coat on him. And then he said, quick, put shoes on his feet. You're redeemed. You are redeemed. You know what that means when, when, when the Bible says you're redeemed? It means you've been redeemed from everything that Adam did to you. Now you can enjoy the life that God has for you. Now you can enjoy the life God has for you. When Boaz redeemed Ruth, you know what it means? Now everything that's mine becomes yours. You can live like I live. Up until this point, you've just been living with your mother-in-law. Up until this point, you've been in this country, but everyone knows you as a woman who's cursed. Now they'll know you as the wife of Boaz, who is wealthy. When I saw that, I was like, man, that's the love of God. That's the love of God. He loved me so much, he redeemed me. And he wants everyone in the world to know, hey, this is my son. He's redeemed. He doesn't go through everything else the world goes through. You don't go through everything else the world goes through. I feel like I am. Yeah, but you know what? You're redeemed. And what does the Bible say about the redeemed? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. so. I'm redeemed. He loved me. Everyone say, I'm redeemed. By the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I don't go through what the rest of the world goes through. I am redeemed. My family is redeemed. My children are redeemed. Tiki, don't say that. We are all redeemed. (laughs) And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.